there are prohibitions or there's a prohibition. I do not permit. And by the way, of course, who is he? I do not. Who's Paul? Uh, what do you think of these people who say, well, I go with Jesus, not Paul? <laughs> uh, I, I, I say they're heretics. <laughs> <laughs> Could you make that a little more clear, please? A little bit. I, that's, here's what I want to say. Uh, they're really they could be also very very ignorant. Look, right. the only Jesus we know is the one taught by the apostles of Christ. We don't have any contact with the uh, with Jesus uh, in this in 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 the Bible except as he is presented to us by the apostles of Christ and those in the apostolic circle. So to say, I go with Jesus and not Paul is to introduce a kind of uh, a, a kind of Christianity uh, that that uh, we we know nothing about. It was the early Gnostics who said they knew Jesus and didn't respect Paul uh, Paul Peter and John. Uh, the only the only genuine Christianity is apostolic Christianity, Amen. and just going with Jesus rather than Paul is, first of all, impossible, and secondly, means that you're not an apostolic Christian. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church here in Joppa, Maryland. And our topic today is men and women in church, or the gender-differentiated commands of 1 Timothy chapter 2 in particular. We might also get to a couple other passages uh, where there are commands to men and commands to women, and they're different, they're gender-differentiated, and there are also a few clear prohibitions written into the passages there. We're going to look at those. And I have a guest today. My guest is Dr. Sam Waldron. Sam is a PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's a pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Owensboro, Kentucky. Incidentally, I've been there. I had the privilege and opportunity once of preaching there. Dr. Sam was in the audience when I preached there. That's a little bit intimidating, but it was all right. We, they, nobody threw anything at me, so it was okay. And uh, Sam is the author of numerous books, including, here's one I'd highly recommend to you, The End Times Made Simple. Uh, I hope to have a second podcast later with Dr. Sam where we're going to talk about eschatology. So we have that one in the works, maybe. He also wrote uh, MacArthur's Millennial Manifesto, A Friendly Response. So that's pretty good. Um, in light of the topic that we're getting into today, I want to highly recommend a paper written by Sam. Sam, you have to tell us. I don't know if this was a dissertation you wrote for something or a paper for some project, but uh, there's a paper online. It's a PDF file, The Role of Women in the Church. Uh, it's 85 pages, and I just want to say, I mean, who am I to judge your work, really? Um, but it is excellent. In fact, it's kind of scary, brother. I think I agree with everything in there. <laughs> like, yeah, that means one of us is unnecessary, and I'm pretty sure that would be me. <laughs> But uh, I, I really want to recommend that to people. If you want to dig in deeper, it's a scholarly uh, publication. You know, it's not like reading Tim LaHaye's The Late Great Planet Earth or something. So um, you'll have to work at it a little bit. But I really recommend his paper. You could just Google Sam Waldron, The Role of Women in the Church. You'll get it. Um, I also like 
Douglas Moo has a paper on 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. That's helpful. I like Hurley's book, Man and Woman in Biblical Perspective. That was from back in the 80s, I think. But I disagree with him on some things, particularly uh, 1 Corinthians 14. It's about women judging the prophecies. I don't go with him on that. Um, anyway, so Dr. Sam, mm-hmm. welcome to Grounded. Thank you. You in Owensboro today? I am in Owensboro today. Got back from Florida. No, I wasn't on spring break. I was uh, I was actually teaching for RBS last week, Reformed Baptist Seminary, and uh, I was I also had a lady. I did a ladies conference last week. See I'm, oh. you know how much I love ladies. There are about two hundred women at a ladies conference at uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Coconut Creek last week. Pretty sweet. 200 ladies. That's a good gathering. Yeah, it was great. How many times did you speak to them? Uh, well, counting Sunday, six times, although the conference itself was only three times. I spoke on biblical femininity, of course. Well, you're warmed up for our topic today, aren't you? I should just ask you, go ahead and speak on those things. Uh, We'd like to hear it, but wonderful. You know, it just happens that yesterday we recorded a podcast here with uh, with Tom Askell. We were just talking about church in general. And then this morning, I don't know how I ran into it, but I ran into a very recent video with you and Tom yeah. talking about woke church. So that was curious that I saw the two of you and I just had, I'm having the two of you. Do you recall, was that pretty recent? Uh, he came and did a module for us a couple years ago on Labor Day. It was just one credit hour course. But uh, it was uh, 12 or 13 lectures on that subject. It was really good. And people can, people can audit it for a small monthly fee at uh, cbtseminary.org. Very good. Thank you. Well, all right. Some more preliminaries before we really jump into our topic. Patient with us, folks. we got a lot of topic to jump into. It's good stuff. But uh, first, let's do a little more personal getting acquainted. So, Sam, I think there are probably some women in your life, very close to you in your life. Like, I believe you have a wife and probably some daughters and maybe daughters-in-law and maybe even granddaughters by now. What do you have, 16 grandkids? It's still at 15. 15. I don't know that we're done, but we're close to getting done, I think. Yeah, I I have a wife of 47 years who still loves me. Hmm. A daughter who, uh, my daughter, I can't believe this, my daughter uh, turned 42. Uh, this last February, she's a great daughter, uh, holds a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from Cedarville University. Uh, I have, through her, five, she has five granddaughters. I have five granddaughters through her. Whoa, five girls. And uh, to, of the total of 15 grandchildren, I have 11 granddaughters and four grandsons. Whoa, hmm. we're about the opposite. We have 13 grandchildren, and there's a bigger bunch of boys out there. So, No, I... I, I, I I love girls. I love my wife. I love my daughter. And uh, uh, and my, by the way, I, I'm proud to say my daughter taught, uh, my wife taught at Heritage Christian School for many years and actually was honored in some local publications for her teaching. So uh, I have a very competent and uh, highly skilled wife. Yes. You probably remember we had dinner together at somebody's house in your church years ago. You and your wife were there. And uh, so I got to meet her there and get acquainted with her a little bit. Let's talk about your church for just a moment. And I just have, since we're on the topic that we're on, I'm going to ask this. It's kind of tongue in cheek, of course. We all know what your answer is going to be, but do you have any intelligent women in your church? (laughs) 
Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church uh, yeah, is uh, a growing church here in the area. Tracy Ladd, who's a member of our church, is now the principal of Christian, Heritage Christian School. And uh, and we have some remarkable, remarkable women in our church beside. I believe you do. So um, there's a bell curve of masculine intelligence. There's a bell curve of feminine intelligence. Yeah. I think you can pretty much impose right one, one right over the other. Yeah. So there's there's men on the lower end of the bell. There's men on the higher end and so on and so forth. So there's probably a lot of equivalence in intelligence. There's a lot of difference in interests, huh? Yeah. In- so we u- so we use our intelligence for different for different ends, for different interests. Okay. But uh, you have some smart women in your church. Uh, you have godly women in your church. We love women. Do you love women? <laughs> yes, I do. I love women, especially the one named Debbie Hartland. Yeah, yeah. I- yeah, and Jacqueline Hartland, too. That's my mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love Charlene Waldron and my daughter, Carissa, and and Clara Talley, Lucy, Ellie, Joe, Molly, Beth, uh, Charlotte, Eden, Micah, and Nyan, Kinsey, and Emery. That was really good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do you have that tattooed on the back of your eyelids or something? That was really good. Oh, the honest truth, Steve, is I've prayed for my 15 grandchildren by name for so many years now that I can probably do it in my sleep. Sweet. I love it. All right, we're going to get closer to our topic. Here's some setup. In the news, I mean literally, in the news right now, Saddleback Church, mm-hmm. the California-based megachurch founded by Rick Warren, yes, the author of The Purpose Driven Life. He founded that church in 1980. It has been a Southern Baptist church until just now, and recently they were expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention for having a woman, I think not one, not two, but three, if not more by now, fill the office of teaching pastor, like the way you've seen this in other churches. Their, their, their lead pastoral team, their, their senior pastor, it's pastors, and I don't know what the names are, Tim and Sally, and so they're pastors, both of them, plural. Um, she's a teaching pastor as much as him. So uh, they've been booted from the Southern Baptist Convention. The church, the news report says, plans to appeal the decision later this year. So I actually watched the video. Have you run into this story, Sam? I, I knew something of it, yes. Yeah. I watched the video with Rick Warren, and he gave his three reasons, his three passages that led him to change his view on ordaining women so that he would ordain women. And here was his first passage, and I'm going to ask you what you think of this. He said, well, it's the Great Commission, because the Great Commission calls all Christians, men and women, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them. See, women are supposed to be teaching, ergo women can be pastors and preachers and teachers. How do you like that exegesis? Do you have any comments to make? Let me be kind. That, that's, <laughs> that's nonsense. And the reason is that the Great Commission is not given to individual Christians, it's given to the church as a whole. And, and as the church as a whole, it's given to the church structured as it is in the New Testament. The individualistic interpretation of the Great Commission is, is, would actually lead to the conclusion that the mother of four little children sitting on the second row could go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, and disciple them. That's a ridiculous application of the text. What is the, the Great Commission is actually in the New Testament given directly to the apostles of Christ as the foundation of the church and to the church built on those apostles of Christ and, and the notion that it leads to the conclusion that women should be preaching, discipling, and baptizing uh, 
people is nonsense, frankly. Yeah, disappointing, isn't it? Yes. Here's the second passage. He then takes us to Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit fell on the new converts and so on, and they spoke in tongues, and he, he claims, though you can't even prove this from the text, he claims that women were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, sure they were. That women also spoke in tongues. Well, maybe, I don't know but they weren't in church. But this is his passage saying, so see, women spoke in tongues, women were filled with the Holy Spirit, so women can be pastors, women can be elders. And his third passage was John 20, verse 17. You'll like this one. When Jesus told Mary Magdalene to go, tell the disciples about his resurrection. See, women are supposed to go and preach the gospel. Jesus chose Mary Magdalene as the first preacher of the gospel. These are his three passages, Sam. Well, uh, yes, uh, first of all, I'll just react to Acts 2. Uh, I'm not sure that you can actually prove from Acts 2 that anybody but the apostles of Christ, Peter and the Eleven, were standing and preaching. Mm-hmm. Now, I would admit that women, women were given the gift of tongue speaking and prophecy, but this gets us back to a distinction I'm going to have to insist on, which I think is crucial to understanding the New Testament, and that is the distinction between the church formally gathered for worship and other public situations that are not the church. And John 20, 17, that's, that's equivocation. He's using the term preach in, an, in a very equivocal way with, and, and, and without the, the clear distinctions that the text we're going to look at uh, forces to put on top of that passage. Amen to that. All right, so enough set up. Let's get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I've got it open over here. You probably just have it open in your brain, and that's all right. You've worked through it a few times, haven't you? So I'm just going to review for a second. We like women, right? We've agreed on that. Uh, let Let me do a little more just set up right here then. Do you believe, I'm sure you do, do you believe that women are created in the image of God? Yes, I do. Yeah. Is anything we're about to say going to rob women of the image of God? Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. We love that women are created in the image of God. And um, I'm just going to ask you also, because this might come up in the text as we talk, do you believe that men and women, though equal in dignity, value, and worth, equally bearers of the image of God, do you believe men and women are different, created different? We have different natures, a nature being a complex of attributes. Are we different? Yeah, and that's not only a matter of, of things, scientific studies that show that even baby women and baby men, if I can use that strange terminology, uh, yes. are born differently from one another. But it's, it's also a, a, an absolute and clear deduction from plain statements of Scripture, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. So we're going to come to First Timothy 2 here. Women preaching, women pastors is the topic. One more setup. I'm sorry, I got too many setups today, too many roadblocks before we finally get to the text. But um, so, just so everybody's clear on this, because in these days we need to repeat this thing. I want people of my church and all my listeners to hear this obvious answer to this question. Where do we go when we want to decide? Should women be elders? Should women be pastors? Should women be preachers in churches or in groupings where, where there's a mixed audience, men and women, adult males present? H- how do we determine these things? Where do we go? <laughs> oh, well, it's clear that we have to remember, and this is something that is so crucial to understanding the biblical text, that the church is the house or temple of God. Only God gets to decide what that church is going to be organized as or how it's going to be organized. And, and so we have to go to 
speaker for that for the answers to those questions. And 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 to say anything else is really uh, both on the one hand arrogant and really insensitive to our spiritual weakness, need, and depravity, and our remaining sin as Christians. Hmm. Very good. So let me just let me ask a follow up question then. So are are you saying that we shouldn't? pay attention to culture, and man, culture's changed, and that was a long time ago, and it's kind of out of date and old-fashioned now and doesn't really fit, and we'll make ourselves pariahs if we try to stick to this stuff, and for the cause of the gospel, we'll rebrand this, or we'll downplay this, or we'll preach our way around it and avoid it. We'll just mainly preach gospel text or whatever. We'll hoist a moist finger aloft and see which way the winds are blowing and blow along with them. Are you saying that's not a good idea? Yeah, I am saying that that's a terrible idea, because... (laughs) Because this this distinction between the gospel and the rest of Scripture is uh, is uh, what's what's the word I want to describe that it's a it's a terrible uh, and devilish seed to plant in anybody's mind. Uh, the gospel extends into all the Scripture. It's manifested in the way we do worship in church, and and this distinction between gospel and church is just uh, insidious. But it's really everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's gotten very, very big, and it's had many, it's got its tentacles reaching into many things like this thing. You agree? All right, we're finally in the text, folks. Thank you for your patience. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Sam, for your patience. First Timothy 2, I want to start back in verse 8. Like the one people might be eager to get to is verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not promote a woman to teach or have authority over man and so on. But I want to go back to verse 8. That's where the gender differentiated commands really begin. And let me read you from a New King James Version in verse 8. I desire, Paul writes, this is God's word, I desire, therefore, that the men, and that's not anthropos, humans, it's it's on air, it's masculine, it's the men. I, I desire, therefore, that the men pray. It's a participle, really. It could be translated, do the praying in every place, meaning in church, I believe, lifting up, holding hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also. And then that's that's like ellipt- that's an ellipsis. There's three dots right there, and you have to supply something, don't you? So, so what do, exegete this for us a little bit, would you please? What does he mean? I, I want the men to do the praying, and what's involved in in like manner also? Can you talk about those? Sure. Well, first of all, this this brings us head on into a distinction without which uh, these passages won't be properly understood. Will be. Uh, and could be terribly misapplied. And that's the distinction between church and not church. Uh, in First Timothy 3.15, Paul, Paul's going to say that the church is the uh, uh, house of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and support of the truth. And it's a distinction that's missing in our day, but we have to, uh, but it's crucial, and it was crucial to our Baptist forefathers as well, we must distinguish between uh, the church formally gathered for worship and other more informal situations and settings. And it's in that context that we have to understand 1 Timothy 2.8, because when he says, I want the men to pray in every place, uh, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, what he's saying is, what he's talking about is the church gathered for prayer. We know that the church gathered for prayer. It's assumed here that the adult males uh, were the ones who would lead that prayer. It's assumed in Acts chapter 2 uh, where uh, the church continued in the prayers, and uh, 
uh, that that uh, corporate prayer in a formal meeting of the church was part of the uh, commanded worship of the church. And that's what's being assumed here. And, and so uh, what Paul is, Paul is saying is that leading in prayer in church is a matter of uh, leadership, and that leadership, as he's going to say throughout this passage, is respect, res- restricted to adult males. And you're right. Uh, the term adult uh, not on air means an adult male as opposed to an adult female, and it needs, means an adult male as opposed to a boy or a child. So uh, that's what the text is saying. So uh, I believe Paul is commanding that in the formal corporate prayer meetings of the church, only men should lead in prayer. That's been our practice at Grace Reformed Baptist Church ever since we've been in existence. But, all right, now now we get to the but and, and the place where uh, people are going to want to misunderstand, and I want to make sure they don't misunderstand. Uh, the but is this. This is talking about the church. It's not talking about small groups. It's not talking about informal times of prayer where uh, several Christians get together. It's not saying that women can't pray in the presence of men. I think that is utterly far uh, far away from what Paul is saying. Uh, it is only talking about the context of the church because in the church, God is especially present because it is the temple of God. And that's the foundation for this command and the explanation for it. So in our, we, we have small groups once a month on Wednesday evenings. And uh, we encourage women to pray there. There's an informal prayer meeting before uh, church begins on Sunday morning, and I'm sure women pray there as well. Uh, And so uh, let's, uh, uh, someone may, this may be really spooky, crazy, uh, never heard it before for some people, but, but a key and fundamental distinction in the Bible is the distinction between church and not church, and small groups and church picnics and church softball games are not the church in this sense of the word. Very good. Yeah, amen. We'll, we'll come back to that when we get down to verse uh, 12. I do not prom- permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, and what's church and what's non-church there. So um, we'll have a look at that. Um, but before we go on, let me just ask, so what about— Verse 9, what is the in like manner also? Does that mean in like manner also the women should pray, dot, 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 or does it mean something else? No, it certainly doesn't mean that. If it didn't mean that, it would be a direct contradiction of what Paul, Paul has said in verse 3. Why say I want the men to pray if he's going to go on to say to say I want the women to pray? And, and, the, and the Greek grammar does not lead to that conclusion. What he's saying is, that uh, when the men are praying, he wants them to do so, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And and what he's talking about is the fact that that uh, in the public gatherings of the church, uh, there's a certain uh, discretion and certain wisdom and certain, um, uh, what's the word I want, um, propriety in the way women should dress when they come to church. And that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about women when they're gardening or in their in their own homes. He's talking about uh, the fact that uh, that in, in a public place like the gathering of the church, women should adorn themselves with proper clothing, and and not come to church with the uh, in the kind of getups that the Roman uh, nobility would come to church that with the hair that uh, had braided into it half the family fortune. 
Okay. <laughs> and yes. If anybody wants to know more clearly what First Timothy two nine is saying, go read William Hendrickson on the subject. Uh, and so hmm. Hendrickson, good. Yeah, uh, he, he he will explain that to you. So uh, Paul Paul is here is commenting, uh, frankly, on uh, on how women ought to appear in church. He's not contradicting himself or somehow uh, doing the non sequitur of saying he wants the men to lead in prayer, and then all of a sudden he's going to say that he wants the women. That's not what should be supplied there. And, and no English version does supply the idea, I want women to pray uh, with adorn, you know, adorning. It's, it, it's not the Greek grammar here. No English translation translates it like that. So let me just, just to be clear, so we're, com- we're about to come out of verses 8 and 9 and move on down to verse 11. But in verses 8 and 9, so... Our understanding of the Bible is that this is saying in in gathered corporate worship, let's say there's an opening prayer, a little bit later there's a pastoral prayer, a little bit later there's a communion prayer, a little bit later there's a closing prayer, and those are all in in the formal meeting, the assembly of the church. Those should all be men praying? Yes, that's what we're saying. Yeah, that's what God's Word is saying, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's our understanding of God's Word. It's not that we don't value women. We're not robbing women of the image of God. It's not that we don't think women are quite capable of praying. It's not that we don't think women aren't intelligent. It's what? Well, we're just bound by God's word. Yes. Correct? Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. All right. Very good. Let's drop down to verse 11. So Paul says, let a woman learn in silence. You know what? I forget. Is that sigao, the same word he uses about three times in 1 Corinthians 14? I don't think it is. It's a different word for silence, isn't it? It's asakia. Ah, that's it. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And then he's going to go on. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So again, where is this? Is this like in a Christian school? Where is this? (laughs) Good point. Um, you know, first of all, I think silence is a little bit of a strong translation here. I know mm-hmm. that King James has it. All, all, the, all the modern English versions have quietly. Quietness. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And uh, one of the things I said in my sermons on biblical femininity last week was, uh, hey, look, there's, there's this, uh, uh, in the Bible, this disposition of quietness, which is uh, something that's supposed to be characteristic of a godly woman overall, but particularly mm-hmm. characteristic of her here in the church. Yes. And so it's a, it's a, it's a matter of, of how she receives instruction and, and, and the, and the meek and quiet spirit, the tranquility, uh, and, and okay, silence. Yes. But, uh, that has a connotation that I'm not sure I really want to bring into it at this point. Yes. The point is that there should be this, this receptive, quiet reception of instruction, and the and the key word here is with entire submissiveness, and that word uh, uh, submissiveness has the idea of putting yourself under uh, under somebody else's authority, mm-hmm. ranging yourself under somebody else's support. Authority is the idea of subordination, prominent, important New Testament biblical word, and it, it's saying that in church as well as in the home, the place. Of the woman is under the authority of her male pastors. Yeah, amen. So, 
So let's clarify something. So this quietness, or New King James Version, silence, but I'm with you, quietness better. It's a disposition of soul. Um, does it apply to singing? Does she supposed to sing quietly? Why not? Does it apply to saying amen? Does it apply to speaking to her husband beside her and saying, can you pass me the water bottle, please? Does it apply to telling her child, sit still, I'm warning you. Um, why does it or not, does it or does it not apply to any of those situations? Well, both here, I, in, if, if we get to a 1 Corinthians 14, we're, we're talking about public teaching. And, and therefore, because we're talking about public teaching, uh, we're talking about addressing the church and addressing the church as a teacher addresses a, uh, a class. And, and that's what we're talking about. So, no, it doesn't apply to asking the person to pass the water bottle. No, it doesn't apply to telling your kids to keep quiet. No, it doesn't apply to saying they may mention they ought to join in the corporate amen. No, it doesn't apply uh, to singing. Uh, these are not acts of corporate leadership. They're acts of corporate worship and part of the spontaneity and the uh, uh, and the dialogue uh, dialogue character of all corporate worship, which everybody should be engaged in who isn't worship at all. Yeah, very much so. That's right. So now we're down into verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. There's there's some fireworks that go off in this verse, brother. Yeah, yes, I'm sure there are. This one's very interesting. So what's he talking about? I do not permit a woman to teach. Again, where are we? We're in church. We've already established that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. Are there one or two prohibitions in this text. What do you say? Well, I think I want to say that at least by implication, there are two. Uh, Let me explain. Um, Obviously, it's saying uh, that uh, a woman shouldn't be teaching in the context of the church. And then I think he's going on to say that she shouldn't be exercising doing that because that's an exercise of religious authority over a man. Again, we're back to the fact that we're talking about the church structure of the formal church gatherings. And to get up and to address the church, to teach the church, is therefore an exercise of authority, right? So I'm not sure if he's saying he's actually talking about two different things uh, explicitly here, but what I, I, I would have to say is that uh, I don't. I think he is implying that there may be other situations. They may not, they may not be gatherings of the church per se. I, I don't think, for instance, that adult Sunday school classes are the church per se. But I would, I, I, I wouldn't be able to defend. Let's put it put it that way. I wouldn't be able to defend appointing a woman to teach a, a, a mixed class of adults myself, because I think that there you have an exercise of religious authority and appointment to a position of authority uh, in, in a, a religious p- p- a teaching position that, it, while it's not the church, is, uh, is, uh, is an appointment of the church to a position that I think would be a mistake to have a woman by herself in. Yeah. So I think there's an implication there, but I'm not sure if uh, Paul means two different things by this verse. 
All right, very good. So there are prohibitions, or there's a prohibition. I do not permit, and by the way, of course, who is he? I do not. Who's Paul? Uh, what do you think of these people who say, well, I go with Jesus, not Paul? <laughs> uh, I, I say they're heretics. <laughs> <laughs> Could you make that a little more clear, please? A little bit. I, that's, here's what I want to say. Uh, they're really they could be also very very ignorant. Look, right. the only Jesus we know is the one taught by the apostles of Christ. We don't have any contact with the uh, with Jesus uh, in this in 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 the Bible except as he is presented to us by the apostles of Christ and those in the apostolic circle. So to say, I go with Jesus and not Paul is to introduce a kind of uh, a, a kind of Christianity uh, that that uh, we we know nothing about it was the early Gnostics who said they knew Jesus and didn't respect Paul uh, Paul Peter and John uh, the only the only genuine Christianity is apostolic Christianity Amen. and just going with Jesus rather than Paul is first of all impossible and secondly, means that you're not an apostolic Christian. Yeah, right on. All right, so also, staying in verse 12 for a minute, I do not permit, so there's prohibition, a woman to teach her have authority. What do you think, it's become trendy now, there, there are people who have turned that into a permission. They say this means, or that, verse 12, means, and you, I'm sure you've heard this, that means a woman can do anything that an unordained man can do. Have you heard that one? Oh, boy. <laughs> so I, I think, should I name a few people? Oh, yeah. I think uh, Tim and Kathy Keller have gone a long way to popularize that one. And I think uh, like the Village Church, Matt Chandler's church in Texas, they're, they're really popularizing that one. And even John Frame, I really love Frame. I was so disappointed that in his 800 pages of the Doctrine of the Christian Life, he comes across this passage and he says, I think even an unordained woman could preach in church. I was just like, what? He's too much theologian and not enough exegete or something. I don't know. But anyway, um, so when this says... Um, well, frame is a problem with the regulative principle to begin with. So if, if you don't understand or if you deny like he does the distinction between church and not church, uh, you're not going to get these texts either. Ah, good point. There's a problem. All right. But what do you think of them turning this negation into a positive statement? This means a woman can do anything an unordained man can do. So in your church, do you allow unordained men to preach? Yes. Yeah, we do too. Yeah, we have back right now. We have six of what we call gifted brothers, who are actually yeah. recognized by the church to preach. Nice. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that that mantra has become very popular and very influential. I, I I'm still you know I'm still uh, maybe I I'm a little ignorant here. I'm still trying to struggle how they get that out of this verse. That sounds like that sounds like. Uh, something that they think is a good and necessary consequence of this verse, but I don't think it's either good or necessary. Yeah, it sounds like a rebranding of the verse to me. Let's re rebrand it and restate it so it's something positive that our culture will like. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More like that. 
Yep. All right, then Paul gives some reasons for this. So why? Why does Paul not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man, but to be in silence? And, well, his reasons are, one, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So we need to talk about what does that mean. That's one of his reasons. What's he, what's he positing there? What's the significance of those statements? And then two, second reason, verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived... It's actually, depending on which manuscripts you go with, it might even be an intensified version. It's got the X, the intensifying preposition on the front. She was hyper-deceived, super-deceived, fell into transgression. So are, are Paul's reasons for this rooted in something local and temporal in their situation? Like you might have heard this one. There are various theories that are, it's like, it's like theology ex nihilo. It's out of out of nothing. It's not out of the text. It's just out of your imagination. Like, oh, well, there were women teachers in the temple, and they were coming into the church and bringing heresy. So Paul needed to stop these women temple teachers coming into the church and stuff like that. What are what are Paul's re- what's he root this in? Well, see, this is one of the most remarkable things about the New Testament teaching on this subject and the biblical teaching on the subject because. Paul roots uh, his understanding of male headship and of the relations of men and women in the church and the home. He roots it in uh, creation. And so uh, uh, his understanding of these things uh, lifts it uh, or, 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 or deepens it far beyond the superficial level of cultural, local, cultural, local considerations to creational considerations. And what is creational is perpetual for Paul. And, uh, and so it's a creation ordinance. And therefore, uh, it's something that must be abided by by all men everywhere all the time. So, amen. Well, then, he's rooting this in creation. He takes us back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And let's look at his first reason. Why are, why are the women not permitted to teach or to have authority over man? Why are they to be in silence? Because Adam was not deceived, but the woman... And he switches. He doesn't say Adam, then Eve. He says Adam, then the woman. What's the significance of that? Why does he make that choice? Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Adam was formed first, then Eve. What's that mean? What's the purpose? Paul's making a point that in the creation account, uh, Eve was uh, created for a, a very important supportive role uh, to, her, to her husband, Adam. Uh, and uh, and that in the creation account, it's obviously Adam who has the leadership role. This is not to demean women. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I sometimes tease that when I'm preaching uh, on this whole thing, you know, Adam was created and brought to the garden. That was his work. Eve was created and brought to Adam. That was her work, and she had the harder job. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Adam Adam was uh, was created first, and Eve was created on account of Adam. That's the language of Paul, which is really explains what he's saying here in first in First Corinthians eleven. The woman was created on account of on account of the husband. She was to be uh, support to him. She was to complete him. He was not good without her. Uh, and there are ways in which the man is dependent upon the woman. That's in fact, one of the things that Paul says very, very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, but the point is that Genesis 2 and 
when Jew and other people don't get this, when when Christian feminists uh, don't get this, it's really remarkable because throughout the creation account, it's very clear that Paul's reading of the creation account as teaching uh, male headship and leadership is just rooted deeply in in that creation account. You know, God, for instance, throughout Genesis 1-1 to all the way to 2-3 is naming everything. Naming is an act of authority. Well, then, uh, and then the animals are brought to to Adam and he names them all. But but then the text says, uh, but for Adam, a a suitable helper was not found. And then the remaining, uh, in Genesis 2 and 3, Adam names Eve. Wife. Yes. It's an act of authority. Uh, and so while she is equal with him in the image of God, while they are interdependent and dependent upon each other, there's a leadership position that's obviously assumed always and everywhere in their Genesis account. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so go ahead with verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. That's his second reason, creation ordinance rooted in creation What's that about? What's he saying? Well, he's, he's saying, I think, that, first of all, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that Adam uh, didn't sin. He's not saying that Adam's sin wasn't the greater sin. In fact, it was. Hmm. But he was saying that uh, apparently Adam sinned, but, as we might say in English, with his eyes wide open. Which Knowingly. Which uh, but the woman was very deceived, and she fell into transgression. And I think Paul's point is that uh, there is a certain vulnerability of women to to deception that is greater than that of the man when they step into roles and positions and and um, places of leadership in the home and in the church that God did not intend them to have. And so it's not saying that women are not smarter, but it is saying that uh, in terms of those roles, it's not a good idea to step out of the, the paths that God has told us to walk in, because when we do that, we are, we are both subject to being deceived and to falling into transgression. Yes. Good. So follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Pretty obvious answer, but it needs to be said. So are, are men deceivable? Can men be deceived? Well, of course they can be. Uh, and uh, and the, all the biblical warnings against self-deception apply to men as well as to women. Uh, but Paul has in mind a particular circumstance and a particular situation here right. that uh, uh, he has in mind. And of course, it's the account of how Eve took the leadership and eating from the tree that had been forbidden to them and then giving to her husband. It's clear that Eve is in a leadership position uh, in that whole transaction, and uh, and it's also and it was clear to Paul. It should be clear to us that uh, that was an inversion of the biblical order. What was she? She didn't even hear the command not to eat of the tree. The, her whole knowledge of that command was given her by by her husband. So what's she in do, in doing in, in engaging in this kind of uh, conversation, discussion, and then decision about something that he was the one who had been given the command. It's another another way in which the Bible makes so clear uh, the leadership of, of the man. and the right. He was given the command. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
based on your experience and what you know of Scripture, might it be easier to deceive men about certain things? A woman would see right through that, but the man could get sucked into that. And might it be easier to discern to, to uh, deceive women about certain other things? A man would see right through that, but a woman might not, due to our differing natures. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think, uh, and and this is why men and women need each other. They're dependent upon mm. each other. By why a man must uh, acknowledge and and frankly embrace his dependence on his wife, for instance, be, and, and and she, of course, on him. But because there is a, a necessity uh, of 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 having the other person's perspective about all sorts of complicated uh, mm. things, uh, I think uh, I think, for instance, <laughs> that uh, my wife, for instance, would see through uh, certain feminine guiles and see see those right. much more quickly than I would see them. Right. Right. Her antenna would go right up, wouldn't it? Wait a minute. I know what that woman's doing. Yeah. And and yeah. The man might, oh, what? Who? Why yeah. did you say that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Very, very good. So is it fair to say, what would you think? Do the, do the gender differentiated commands like these that we're looking at, do they map to, do they connect to our differing male and female natures? Yeah, absolutely they do. I, I really, uh, though I don't agree with everything in the book, uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem's, uh, basically Piper, I think, recovering biblical manhood womanhood. I think when he uh, he attempts in an opening essay in that to uh, give definitions of biblical masculinity and femininity, he does a he does a pretty good job uh, of doing uh, what is a fairly complicated and nuanced. Uh, nuanced thing in the Bible. And so I actually, I actually quote him in preaching on, on both biblical masculinity and femininity. So yeah, there's, there is, there, it does map. And there are several things in the Bible that make this clear. I mean, this is one of the passages, 1 Timothy 2.14, that points directly to a created difference between men and women. Another passage is the language of, of weaker vessel, which is though, though it is, uh, Detestable by modern fem- feminists. The fact of the matter is that uh, there's nothing demeaning about that language for women if it's properly understood. But it does point to a, a created difference between men and women, mm-hmm. and and uh, I think that created difference is also pointed to in First Corinthians 11 as well, when Paul describes uh, the one woman being created. Uh, for the man and not the man for the woman. Great passage. By the way, I just want to toss in here, and I'm sure you're aware of this, that uh, I think it's fair to say, I think it would be accurate to say that there's a, a pretty large agreement among what, what we might call the best psychologists on the planet in our day, and they study what are the differences between masculinity and femininity, yeah. and their their most common thing they agree on, their most asserted difference is that men are interested in things and systems of those things, yeah. whereas women are interested in people and relationships, the, the systems of the relationships in those things. Men are interested in things, and by the way, theology is a thing. Yeah. And, and women are interested in people and the relationships, and so understanding that, I think, might a man 
find different things to preach in a passage than a woman would? Might a man want to address different things than a woman would? And I would think so because we we have differing natures. Do you have any comments on that? Oh yeah, um, I, I think I think that's true, and it's why uh, preachers ought to ought to try to. Uh, well, let me back up and say yes, absolutely, and and that and that whole difference uh, traces right back to, and as I think uh, clearly implied in Genesis two. Uh, with uh, if if you understand that the work of the woman was the man, and the social relationships are going to grow out of that relationship, mm-hmm. and, and 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 the work of the man, the vocation of the man was to keep and to uh, keep the Garden of Eden to work in the garden. There there are these uh, differing differing proclivities and interest in men and women, and and they trace right to their God created purposes and intentions. Even in the curses given yeah. after the fall, yeah. the curse on the woman is childbearing, family. The curse on the man is your work in the field and thorns and thistles and sweat. Yes, that's right. So I, I and it's and uh, so that psychological insight is very consistent with what we would expect in the Bible. You know, uh, when I preach on on biblical masculinity, Steve, I I talk about the fact that. Uh, uh, of how important a man's vocation is, and 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 this is not just some sort of Western idea. I mean, uh, the first thing we know about Adam is what he did. First thing we know about Cain is what he did. The first thing we know about Abel is what he did for a living, and and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, uh, vocation. Uh, is is crucial. Vocation in the world is crucial to biblical masculinity. Amen, brother. So we're about to leave 1 Timothy 2, and we're just going to touch down for a few seconds in a couple other texts, and then we're going to draw this to a close. That's all right with you. You'd probably like to talk a lot more on this and fill it out more, but sorry, they need to go read your paper. That's right. I'm, I'm glad, you know, sometimes this stuff gets stuck online, and, and I don't mind, but I, I wasn't actually consciously aware that this was someplace online. I'm glad to hear it. Oh, yeah. it is. I've recommended it to various other people and they've, they've read it to profit. You really, <laughs> what do you, you ought to get that thing published, man. I know it's academic. It's very I, academic in nature. I know, but, but yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing when I was looking at your questions and hmm. yeah, uh, especially in our day and age, I got to, I think, th- I think there's a space for it. Yeah. 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 And so much, even by, Conservatives, there's so much misunderstanding and what the Bible saying yes. is text. Yes. So we could talk more about what, what are some of the workarounds? How do people get around this text? We've already talked a little bit about the, some might just come right out and say, well, Paul was wrong. This part isn't the word of God. Now they're starting to shred their Bible. Yeah. Now they don't have an inspired, infallible, inerrant Bible. Now they don't have an authoritative Bible. Now they don't have a sufficient Bible. They've just lost everything. Yes. But um, another view is, uh, we already talked about it. Well, I go with Jesus, not Paul. You rightly noted for us that without the apostles, you don't know one thing about Jesus. Yes. Biblical Christianity is apostolic or it's not biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. But another thing is... Um, Radical new interpretations. Yeah. Yeah. New, new ways of understanding this. Um, so what ha, what do you run into? When you run into people 
somehow working around, circumventing what Paul's teaching here. What do you most run into? How are they trying to do that? Yeah, uh, good question. I, the first thing that comes to mind is one on 1 Corinthians 14, where they try to read Paul's commands in 1 Corinthians 14 as somehow a quotation of some false false or, or, or wrong teaching coming out of Corinth. Uh, and it's sometimes that's associated with some sort of uh, idea of the text being not quite correct and so forth. Uh, and so there are a lot of things coming out, out, out like this. The problem is, well, a couple of problems. Uh, first of all, there, there ought to be some deference paid to 2,000 years of biblical interpretation hmm. by the past hmm. teachers that Christ has given to the church. So these kind of interpretations are entirely novel, for one thing. But, but secondly, when they're examined, uh, they are... Um, they are, yeah, they're created out of thin air. There's, there's no biblical basis to say these things, right? Yep. There's a lot of that happening now. Books are being sold full of that stuff. Yeah. So watch out. All right. So I would love for us to touch down in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 33b and going on. Wouldn't even hurt to make a little flyby of Galatians 3.28, but we're already 53 minutes into this podcast, and we probably need to land the plane here soon. So let me just ask you some quick questions, if I may, about several of those passages. So 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16, it's, it's been a popular view now, probably popularized by Piper and Grudem and some others. I think it's in, in the book you mentioned that Piper was kind of the editor for. I think it's in that one. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. There are women prophesying. Yep. Where are they doing that? Because 1 Corinthians 14 sure seems to say they shouldn't be doing that in church. But the, but there's this new view that's, that's no, actually, they are prophesying in church. The only thing they're prohibited from doing in church is judging other prophets, because oh that would be an act of authority. What do you think of all that? Oh, I, it makes me upset. <laughs> we we want to see you get upset. Show us what that looks like. No, you would not want to see that. Oh, all right. Okay. Um, there's the, never mind. I won't go into it. Um, well, look, uh, the, the, it's an ancient crux, an ancient crux, a problem. Uh, how do you relate 1 Corinthians 11 to 1 Corinthians 14? And the first thing I want to say is that it's a real problem. It's a real problem because Paul seems to allow in 1 Corinthians 11 exactly what he forbids in 1 Corinthians 14. And, and this gets us into the whole idea that by for, forbidding women to speak and telling them to keep silent, he's only talking about judging the prophets. You know, the terms speak and keep silence are never used to judging the prophets any place as far as I can see. And, and in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 14, lalao, the word for speak is used like 24 or 25 times. Huh. And it has reference either to prophesying or more frequently to tongue speaking or preaching. Or preaching. Exactly. And so uh, it, it's, and then the whole context is with the use of speak and, or, and keep silent in the previous uh, eight or nine verses is speaking of how tongue speakers uh, should speak and keep silent. Prophets should speak and keep silent. And then Paul comes on to women. First Corinthians 14, three times, uh, talks about this being in the church. And what he's saying is that he does not want women to prophesy or speak in tongues 
in the church. And that's the most natural reading of the text, and that's the way everybody would read it, except for the cultural egalitarianism that is, mm-hmm. that is mis- mystifying the Bible and obscuring the Bible to us. Mm-hmm. So there's a real problem because Paul assumes that women are praying and are prophesying and praying, perhaps speaking in tongues, because seeking in tongues is a form of prayer, in 1 Corinthians 11, exactly the things that he forbids in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, my understanding and there are like 10 different ways that you can find that the commentators relate those two passages and try to make sense of them together. But I think the easiest and best is that 1 Corinthians 11 is simply not talking about the church. Yes, there were women tongue speakers. Yes, there were women prophets. The rest of the Bible makes that very clear. What they are forbidden to do is not prophesy or speak in tongues everywhere and anywhere, but they're forbidden to do that in the corporate formal gatherings of the church. And yes. that's the way the two passages need to be put together, I think. Yes. Hey, one more thing to add to that. I wonder what you think of this. When, when Paul was finished with that whole section in 1 Corinthians 11, then he turns to a new topic in verse 17 and says, Now, in giving these instructions, here comes a new topic, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And it seems like there he says, now I'm going to address things having to do with when you come together. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I absolutely do agree with that. I think some good commentators say the same thing. And so when people say, well, doesn't Paul go on to talk about gatherings of the church in verse 17 and following? The answer to that is, of course. And in fact, I think that's his focus all the way through chapter 14. But what right. they miss is that there's this transition point at verse 17 that you yes. just pointed out. I think it's an important issue. Yeah, very good. Oh, finally, let's just stop in for 10 seconds or whatever at Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither male nor female. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew or Greek. There's neither bond nor free. We're all one in Christ. So does that overturn gender role distinctions in the family and in the church and that are taught in all the other paths? Is this where Paul gets it right, but Paul had it wrong everywhere else? Why or why not? <laughs> oh, my. That's too easy to question. Uh, but, no, the point is this. Paul in, in Galatians 3.28 is talking about salvation in Jesus Christ. He's not denying that there are other differences, important spiritual differences even, between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Paul himself is going to another place saying, uh, say there's a priority to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And he's just not talking about that stuff. He's talking about union with Christ. That's all he's talking about. And he's saying that both men and women are, are, are united in their union with Christ in salvation. They have salvation the same way in union with Christ, they both have that available to them, we might say. So uh, that's what he's talking about. And, and then to extend, the, and, and to extend that to some sort of denial of creation roles is to fall back into the trap of saying that somehow male headship is a result of the fall and it's removed by redemption. Hmm. But, but redemption does not, uh, but it, male headship is not a matter of the fall. And something removed in redemption. Male headship is a matter of creation, and creation is redeemed but not annihilated by redemption. Good phrase. Redeemed but not annihilated. Yeah, amen. All right, I'm going to land the plane here. This has been really wonderful. I I mean, I I would like to keep you for five more hours, but (laughs) um, 
people might be turning off the podcast by then anyway, though they can always return to it. But I just want to come back to something we started with, Dr. Sam, Pastor Sam, and that is, uh, now let's, let's make it clear. Let's get it out there on the table. You and me, we like women, don't we? You like women? <laughs> yes, I, yes, I, I do. In fact, I've often thought to myself, this may be, seem strange, but uh, I, I might gravitate to sitting down and talking with three or four women more than I sit down than- <laughs> and talk with three or four, four men. I don't know. Why? why? Why is that? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I find them more interesting in some respects, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> interesting. Or at least, or maybe, yeah, more interesting is probably the word I want. I mean, uh, 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 I learn, I learn things. I know what men think. I, I learn oh, okay. things when I, I, I talk to women because I'm not sure I know what yeah. women think. Yeah. I'm always, do you have, do you have in your church, we have in our church, do you have in your church some unusually bright women, like I say those words, unusually bright women, and I can picture several, the number of women in our church yeah. who are unusually bright, and man, it's a pleasure to hear them talk about things. Oh, Do you yeah. have that in your church? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think of Tracy, and I think of of others on, on this issue that come immediately to mind, uh, uh, women who are just expert teachers of children and uh, have long experience doing that. So, yes, yeah. I, I do. Yeah, very good. Sam, thank you for spending this time with me. Go ahead. You were about to say something? Oh, I just remembered another woman. I should, you know, there's... there's yeah, I'm afraid to start naming one because then I'll leave the one out and... Names, but I said, we have a woman who's been the vice president. She's been a homeschooling mother, and out of out of her home, she's been the vice president of a fair, fairly ma- major company within the past 50 or 60 employees. Wow. <laughs> and, there's a woman of some capability. And, huh? she, and she raised six really wonderful kids. Bless the Lord. Yeah. Proverbs 31 woman, huh? Yeah. Her husband rises up, calls her blessed in the gates. Yeah. Thank you for spending this time. I hope I can have you again, and we want to talk about eschatology one time, and if you're willing, maybe I'll even put you through some more of this, and we'll have some other topics that come up and you can help us on, but really appreciate it. Yeah. Anything fine you want to say finally, or are we all done? Just thank you, Steve. It's been great uh, seeing you again and talking with you about this very, very important subject, and uh, uh, let's pray that God uh, causes light to break out of darkness on this issue. Big amen. Thank you, brother. So that's it for Grounded today. You can find us on all major platforms. We come up, come out currently two times a month. So uh, hope you can tune in with us again and maybe even share us with a friend. Thanks. Have a great day. 